This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. British people, I particularly love Roman history. And if you're Welsh this morning, you should have a particular connection with Roman history because the word Welsh, word Wales, both mean Roman. They're the same words as Valois, Wallachia, Walloon. Um, Romania means land of the Romans. The other name for Romania is Wallachia, land of the Welsh. So if you're a Romanian working in Wales, welcome home. (laughs) In an English dictionary, however, you'll find that the word Welsh means foreigner, which actually is as racist as using the N-word to describe black people. But the memory of the Roman Empire on Wales is amazing. We were the only bit of the Western Roman Empire that didn't fall to the Germans in the 5th century. And if you look in the Welsh language, it's fascinating the way Latin has survived. In English, the days of the week are named after Norse gods. Monday, day of the moon. Wednesday, Votan's day. Thursday, Thor's day. But in Welsh, the days of the week are exactly the same as in Latin. We've got the same sentence construction as well. The day becomes before the actual attribute. So we should have a connection, okay, with the Roman Empire. Some of the things I should be saying to you this morning shouldn't be too strange. The Romans, before they became Christians, were the most brutal, militaristic, patriarchal empire the world had ever seen. They were horrifically violent to their enemies, but they were pretty violent to themselves as well. If you were a senator and you fell out with the emperor, you were expected to commit suicide. You'd go home and in front of your friends and your family, your servants and your slaves, you'd stab yourself to death. In fact, there was one instance where a senator hesitated to stab himself and his wife grabbed the knife from him and said, I'll show you how a Roman should die and she killed herself and the Romans were so impressed by that they raised a statue to her. Before the Romans moved on to having a seven-day week, they used to have an eight-day week and they had a little custom. The father, the patriarch of the family, had eight days to decide whether he'd accept or reject a child that was born to his wife. If the child was disabled, the likelihood is they'd put the baby in a basket, they'd take it and put it on a rubbish dump and leave it there. And you might think that's really brutal. But guess what? The majority of babies are aborted in Britain are aborted because they're disabled. So actually we're not that different to the Romans, are we? Difference being maybe they had the guts to look the child in the eye before killing it, whereas we regard babies that are aborted in the same way we regard the appendix as just something to be forgotten. If you're a wealthy Roman, you'd probably keep all your girl children. If you weren't that wealthy, you might keep the first daughter. You might keep the second daughter. The third daughter you'd probably put in a basket. You'd take and you'd leave them on a rubbish tip. Most of the slaves in Rome came from people going to the rubbish tip, seeing babies, taking them home and raising them as slaves. You can imagine what kind of life they lived. But if the patriarchal father decided to keep the child... He'd perform a little ritual, and in front of friends and family and servants and slaves, he'd take the child and he'd put the child on his knee. Wouldn't say a word. Now, as I'm sure you know, the Latin for knee is genu. When the Roman Catholic priest bows before the host or bows before the Pope, they genuflect, bending of the knee. So when the patriarchal Roman father took the baby and put it on his knee, everybody would say, the child is genuine. That's where we get the word from. So let me just ask you one question this morning. Are you a genuine or counterfeit Christian? If you've got your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 8, and I'm reading from verses 31 to verses 47. 
To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, If you make my word your home, you will indeed be my disciples. You will learn the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered, We're descended from Abraham, and we have never been the slaves of anyone. What do you mean you will be made free? Jesus replied, I tell you most solemnly, everyone who sins is a slave. Now the slave's place in the house is not assured, but the son's place is assured. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descended from Abraham, but in spite of that you want to kill me, because nothing I say has penetrated into you. What I, for my part, speak of is what I have seen with my father. But you, you put into action the lessons learned from your father. They repeated, our father is Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do as Abraham did. As it is, you want to kill me when I tell you the truth, as I've learned it from God. That is not what Abraham did. What you are doing is what your father does. We were not born of prostitution, they went on. We have one father, God. Jesus answered, If God were your father, you would love me, since I have come here from God. Yes, I've come from him. Not that I came because I chose. No, I was sent and by him. Do you know why you cannot take in what I say? It's because you're unable to understand my language. The devil is your father, and you prefer to do what your father wants. He was a murderer from the start. He was never grounded in the truth. There is no truth in him at all. When he lies, he's drawing on his own store because he is a liar and the father of lies. But as for me, I speak the truth. And for that very reason, you do not believe me. Can one of you convict me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? A child of God listens to the words of God. If you refuse to listen, it's because you are not God's children. You know, the Jews thought that they were genuine sons of Abraham and genuine sons of God because they were genetically descended from Abraham via Jacob. And they thought that was enough. But what Jesus is telling them is this. Everybody is born a slave. Every single person is born a slave to sin. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans, okay, who lived among them. But the Samaritans, guess what? They were also the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. They were freed from Egypt. They traveled across the wilderness. They came into the promised land. The difference was they accepted everything that the prophets said about the preeminence of Jerusalem. They looked instead back to the teachings of Moses, who said, when you get into the promised land, you should worship God on Mount Gerizim. So that was the division between the two. But the Jews, do you know what? They had become proud and they had become arrogant and they lost the understanding of who they really were. Do you know what? When you look at the world today, you find that there's two and a half billion people who claim to be Christians. But seriously, how many of them are actually disciples? And do you know what this morning? Every single one of you, every single one of you could be a counterfeit Christian. And it, it actually it wouldn't matter to me. But what if I'm a counterfeit? What if I'm not the real deal? What if I don't know who I really am? I can't afford to wait till the day of judgment to find out the truth. It's too late then. I've got to know the truth about myself now. And that's what this word is about this morning. It's about finding out the truth about ourselves because the truth will set us free. So, I've got a question to ask. Are you a son or a slave? 
we all began as slaves, okay? But we've got to make that transition whereby we move to God and he takes us and he puts us on his knee and he says, you're my son. That's when we become a genuine Christian. The Jews have actually forgotten their own scriptures. They didn't realize that God had told them that their point of origin was exactly the same. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 4 to 6, we read, this is God speaking, Jerusalem, on the day you were born, there was no one to cut your navel cord. No one put salt on you and washed you to make you clean. No one wrapped you in cloth. No one felt sorry for you or took care of you. On the day you were born, your parents threw you out into the field because no one wanted you. Then I passed by. I saw you lying there, kicking in the blood. You were covered with blood. But I said, please live. That was what God had sent to the Jewish people, and they'd forgotten that. It's what God says to us as well. We become sons by adoption, all of us, Jew and Gentile. But the sad thing is, some people have chosen to become slaves again. That's what Jerusalem did. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus talks about a person who is a son. He's a genuine Christian. But he asks for his inheritance from his father. And by so doing, he's actually saying, Dad, you're dead to me. But the dad is very generous. He gives him his inheritance. The boy goes off, spends all his money, and he ends up making a living looking after pigs. And he kind of wakes up then, and he realizes that the servants in his father's house were better fed and better kept than he was being kept. So he goes back. And the story of the prodigal is that when he comes back, his dad welcomes him. He makes a fuss over him. He kills the fattened calf. Whatever that is, I have absolutely no idea. And it's his brother who gets a little bit upset. Okay, he's a little bit uppity. But the dad says to the brother, hey, don't worry. Everything I have is yours. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. It's a parable about backslidden Christians, not about non-Christians. There's a difference between sinning and being a slave to sin. I don't know about you. You might be all righteous people, but I sin. I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. And I don't do things I should do. But I'm not a slave to sin. Scripture actually says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin in us, we are deceiving ourselves. So if you say you have no sin on you, you've lied, which is an even worse sin. To be a slave to sin. What does that actually mean? In modern parlance, it actually means to have an addiction. The son leaves the father's knee, he lies down on a rubbish tip, and the devil picks him up and chains him and leads him away. You are then obedient to the addiction. How do you know if you've got an addiction or not? It's quite simple. When you're not doing it, you will be wanting to do it thinking about doing it, preparing to do it, and you will pay any price to make sure that you can do it again. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And I tell you this now, you will lay down your lives for your treasure. As I've said before, if your treasure is your children, you will lay down your life for them. I've supervised men who downloaded child pornography. They didn't have the normal profile of offenders. They'd never committed an offense. They were doctors, teachers, police officers, civil servants, businessmen. And yet, they were willing to risk their careers, their jobs, their families, their children, their friends, their reputation, and their freedom. Because they were chained to that addiction, and they couldn't shake it off. You can be addicted to food. You can become morbidly obese or bulimic, and you can end up killing yourself for that addiction. 
social media, computer games, you can spend all your time playing those. Drugs and alcohol are obvious ones. What about anger? The angry man who loses everything and everyone because he's just in such a state of rage with the world. What about your career? Tim Keller, the only guy I can watch on TV now without reaching for my gun, he runs a church in New York. And he says, there's child sacrifice going on in New York. And everybody goes, what? And he says, everywhere people are sacrificing their children to their careers. And the people who do that say they're doing it for their family. But when those kids grow up, what do they say? I never knew my dad. I never knew my mum. They were always away doing their stuff. You can sacrifice everything to religion. You can turn religion into an addiction. Livingston, the man who discovered Africa, although I think the Africans already knew it was there, he, he wandered around Africa with his kids until finally his family had enough and they went back home to Scotland. And in his old age, he said, when my children were young, they wanted to play with me in the evening and I was too tired to do so. And now that I am old, I want to play with my kids and they're gone. How many prodigal sons have been created because their parents were overly religious and in the end, they sacrificed them to the worship of the church or the worship of Sunday? It's sad. It's really sad. And when you look at the nations of the world, you find that certain nations have a predisposition to addiction. 50%, sorry, 56% of all the morphine that's sold in the world is used by the United States of America. 320 million people use it all. Africa has 500 million people in it. They use 0.02% of morphine. Now, don't tell me that Americans are suffering more pain than Africans, okay? Of course, you might say, well, the Africans are too poor to afford it. But you look at, say, Japan. Japan's got 40% of the population of America. They use 0.8% of the world's morphine. They don't have a problem in that area. But when you look at America, because we've got the stats for that country, man, talk about addiction to sin. Every year, 13,000 people are shot dead there. Every year, 23,000 people die of illegal drugs. 25,000 people die every year from prescription painkillers. Uh, Heath Ledger, Michael Jackson, probably Prince, all died from overdoses, accidental overdoses on prescription painkillers. Suicide claims 43,000 people. Alcohol claims 90,000 people. Obesity, 300,000 people. And smoking, 500,000 people. A million Americans die every year because they're slaves to sin and they're addicted. And how many of those people are Christian? Should be none, but I somehow doubt it. And then you look at Southeast Asia, and they might not have a problem with morphine and drugs, but guess what? In China and Japan and Singapore and South Korea, they're absolutely obsessed with social media and computer games. I mean, two years ago, I saw a, a program about the dating scene in Japan. And you might wonder, why are you watching programs like that? <laughs> I have to do the research for moments like this, okay? So this English woman is interviewing these professional and young uh, Japanese women in a bar. And she's saying, well, you know, what's it like dating Japanese men? And they're saying, well, we can't date them. They, they just don't come out. They just spend all their time playing computer games. And there was one Japanese woman there, and she made this memorable comment. She said, and if you do date them, they don't know where to put their hands. And I thought, I never had that problem when I was a teenager. <laughs> I, al I always knew where to put my hands. And I never had a complaint. Until I met Jen. No, I'm not kidding. She loved it. She absolutely did. 
She thought it was great. In fact, things are so bad in Japan that Japanese men have girlfriend apps. They have a girlfriend on a mobile phone. Are you mad? The only thing she can do is talk to you. That's the last thing you want a girlfriend to do. Those lips were not meant for talking. They were meant for kissing. That sounds really creepy, doesn't it? <laughs> if you look at Britain, look at UK millennials, okay? Some good things are happening. Over the last 10 years, alcohol consumption has gone down by 20%. Binge drinking down by 50%. Drug taking down by 30%. Crime down by 66%. Teenage pregnancy down by 50%. And you think, wow, the millennials are so more moral than the baby boomers. But it's because they're spending all their time on computer games and social media. They're not getting out. They're not meeting people. What's the point of nicking a car and going joyriding when you can play Grand Theft Auto? The virtual reality is much more fun than the real reality. But it highlights this particular point. The prodigal son is alone with his sin. And you will be alone with your addiction. You will lose family and friends, sons and daughters, wife or husband, to keep worshipping your idol, unless you can get them to worship it with you through codependency. If you do not condemn an addiction in someone you love, you condone it. Caring necessarily involves confrontation. Let me illustrate that in a simple way. Seven o'clock at night on a Saturday, your 14-year-old daughter says, I'm off out. You say, where? Oh, I'm going out with, and she mentions a girlfriend that you know. Where are you going? Swansea. Who are you going with? Uh, and he men she mentions a bloke you haven't heard of. You look out the window, there's two guys in a car, there's a girl in the back. You begin to question slightly further. Where in Swansea are you going? How long are you going for? The answers kind of come out like, they flow like Vaseline. You know, this person doesn't really want to talk to you. Finally, in the end, you put your foot down and say, you're not going and that's when the argument starts. The trouble with you, Dad, you never let me do the things I want to do. Why aren't you like other dads? But guess what? You feel for her and you fear for her. So in the end, she storms up to her bedroom and it's going to be difficult for the next week. Of course, you could have just said, bye. But it's possible you might never see her again. 1,700 children were raped in Rotherham. Where were their dads? Where were their parents? Where was the person to question them and to say no? Actually, one guy did. He saw his daughter, 15-year-old daughter, getting into a car with a group of Pakistani paedophiles, and he tried to stop her, and the police arrested him and charged him with obstruction and affray. What a great country to live in. Care workers, social workers, police officers, labor counselors, not just colluding with and condoning, but enabling the abuse of children. Wow, the judgment of God when it comes on this nation. It will come big time. But if you care, then you will question and you will not condone. And if need be, you will challenge. And if need be, you will have confrontation. And the same goes for the person in your life who has an addiction. You don't enable it. You fight against it. You have to because that's real and genuine love. There is the insecurity of the slave. Does a Christian who is a slave to sin lose their salvation? Well, we can't say. You know, you can't prejudge the judge. All judgment has been left to the son. But in John chapter 8, verse 35, as we've read, we read, the slave's place in the house is not assured, but the son's place is assured. If you're a slave to an addiction, you lose the assurance of salvation. 
And you've got to understand that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is going to be saved. In the parable of the sower, only one in four were saved. He was the one who bore fruit. The other one, guess what? There was no understanding. There was no root in that person, so they didn't bear fruit. Somebody else, they suffered because of the word, and so they gave up producing fruit. And the third person, well, they at the end of the day were the ones who loved riches and materialism, and so they didn't produce fruit. It's the fruit that is the proof of salvation. It gets a little bit better in the parable of the bridesmaids. It's gone up to 50% there. 50% of them had their light burning, the other 50% didn't. And in the parable of talents, it's a massive 66%. Two people multiply the talents, and one person buries it in the ground. It's never 100%. Calvin would look out in his church in Geneva, and he'd say, I don't know who's saved. And he was running a police state. Didn't turn up on a Sunday, you were fined. Committed adultery, you were thrown out of Geneva. Committed heresy, they killed you, okay? That's what I call tough love. We don't do that in this valley, and we haven't done for several years. Thank <laughs> God. How many times can you be a prodigal son? How many times can you go from your father's knee to being an addict, to being on your father's knee, and to being an addict? If you do it over years, then there's some degree of insincerity there, isn't there? But how often will God forgive? God has told us we should forgive each other seven times 70 times. Personally, I think that's a little excessive. Um, If you sin against me, I will forgive you. If you sin against me twice, I will forgive you. If you sin against me three times, there'll be a pause, but I will forgive you. (laughs) The fourth time, I have to quote Liam Nielsen from Taken, because I might not have much money, But I do have a set of particular skills derived from my unique experience. And I will hunt you down, and I will find you, and I will kill you. (laughs) I am so unfit to give this word, I tell you. But anyway, if we're supposed to forgive each other seven times, 70 times, maybe God is willing to do that exactly the same number of times to us. The trouble is, if you look back on a life lived like that, you haven't made much of it have you, to be honest. The assurance of salvation is the fruit of salvation. And did a word on this last year in some detail, but just to recap, there are nine fruit. And if you can see the fruit in your life, do you know what? You know you are saved. You know you're a genuine Christian. Love. Don't tell me you love the Jews if you hate the Palestinians or vice versa. Don't tell me you love ABC if you hate Elam. Love is unconditional And it has no preference. It is universal for all children of God. Joy only comes through victory. Victory over the negative things in yourself and your circumstances. Peace. Peace has to be imposed. You have to impose it upon yourself, upon your restless spirit, upon your circumstances. We imposed a peace on Germany in 1945. The Romans had a Pax Romana, the peace of the Roman Empire. The Brits, after the defeat of Napoleon, had the Pax Britannia, the peace that we imposed on the world. The Pax Americana is not working too well. The world is falling to pieces. Patience? The fruit of patience? Almost completely absent from Pentecostalism. Why? Because we don't like boring things. We want things to be exciting. Give us a sugar rush. Make me jump and shout. Do you know what? Nothing more boring than getting on your knees for a couple of hours and praying to God. And yet... That patience bears fruit. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up like eagles. 
Do you know what? Good things come to those who wait. Nothing more boring than doing a math GCSE when you hate math. Nothing more boring than doing a vocational qualification when you just want to get out there building walls or whatever. Do you know what? Patience is the key to so much. And you have to have it. But it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We should be the most patient people on earth. Because all of the really big and good things that we want, we will only have in the next life. What about compassion? Compassion is not a feeling. A saki guy comes to Jesus and he says to him, what have I got to do to be perfect? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your strength, and all that is within you, and your neighbor as yourself. And like most saki people, he then said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, in Luke 10, says the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Samaritan's walking on the road, sees a Jew who's been beaten up. All the other Jews have ignored him. The Samaritan gets down on his knees, cleans his wounds, binds his wounds, takes him to a hostel, looks after him. You cannot disassociate compassion from an action. If you have compassion on the children in this church, you'll be a Sunday school teacher. If you have compassion on the people in this church, you'll be on the breakfast rotor, you'll be on the cleaning rotor. If you have compassion on kids outside of this church, and you're free on a Wednesday, if you're not, you can't, but if you are, you'll be working in Jolly Tots. If you have compassion on the unsaved, you won't need to be asked, you'll be knocking on doors, you'll be giving out tracts, you'll be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Compassion is always embedded in an action. And you might say, well, I give money to charity. Doesn't everybody? Doesn't everybody do that? Sometimes giving money can be a substitute for compassion rather than an expression of it. I'm reminded of the words of my favorite Slovenian Marxist atheist theologian, (laughs) Slavov Zizek, in his book, Living in the End Times. And he says this, criticizing the Western liberal who loves the African child that he'll never meet, but hates the neighbor that he sees every day. And the theological bit is this. And he said, and that's why Jesus said, love your neighbor, because the hardest people to love are the ones you know. And the Jews and the Samaritans, they really, really didn't like each other. Look at the Muslims, Sunni and Shia. Sounds like a group, doesn't it? But actually, it's the two big divisions in Islam. They've been slaughtering each other for 1,300 years, but they've got so much in common. You know, they believe in Muhammad, they believe in the Hadith, they believe in the Quran, and yet they can't live together with each other without slaughtering each other. What about our own bit of ground? What about Northern Ireland? Two Irish tribes... Two groups of Ulster men and women. They both honor Cuchulain, the great Irish mythical hero. If you go to the post office in Dublin, there's a statue there of the dying Cuchulain. In Northern Ireland, they've got exactly the same statue. These people are so similar. They are so close. And yet, boy, do they hate each other. That was brought home to me years ago. A guy in the 70s is traveling through the countryside in uh, Ulster at night. And he stopped at an illegal checkpoint. And guys with hoods on come up to him with a gun. And they say to him, you're Catholic or you're Protestant? Give the wrong answer and you're dead. And the guy truthfully answered, I'm a Buddhist. And there's a moment of hesitation. And the guy with the gun says, you're Catholic Buddhist or you're Protestant Buddhist? <laughs> it's madness. It's absolute madness. I was so pleased... When Martin McGuinness, who used to be the head of an IRA unit, and Ian Paisley, power shared together, and they suddenly found these two enemies, they had so much in common. They loved Ireland. They loved the Irish. They were both Ulstermen. And when Ian Paisley died, Martin McGuinness said this, 
I've lost a friend. Do you know what? That is compassion. That is actually compassion from an unexpected quarter. You've either got it or you ain't, but you can evidence it in the way in which you behave and the way in which you serve people. Or don't. Goodness. Goodness, the opposite of that is rottenness. It's about soundness, okay? You know, the old British wooden ships, they'd get them out of the water, put them in a dry dock. They'd hit each plank with a hammer and see if it sang or whether it made a dull noise. I used to live at the back of a, a good yard in Abitaleri, and every now and, after, every now and then the wheel tappers would come with a big hammer, and they'd hit the wheels on the wagons. And they'd see if the wheels made a ding, in which case the wheel was sound, or it made a dong, it was cracked, so they'd have to replace it. When something hits you hard, do you go ding or do you go dong? <laughs> There's a lot of people in this valley who go dong. Seriously, oh, I've lost my job. Oh, I got a cold, couldn't find a parking space in Tesco. Oh, church is rubbish. <laughs> Seriously, you're rotten. The goodness isn't there. If the goodness, if the soundness of the Holy Spirit is in your life, it doesn't really matter what happens. Do you know what? It'll make you sing rather than cry. Faithfulness, the opposite of that is selfishness, isn't it? You know, faithfulness means doing what you don't want to do. Selfishness just means doing what you want to do. And then you look at something like gentleness. Gentleness is strength. Loud, noisy, angry people are weak, but gentle people. There's a strength there. Still waters run deep. And finally... Self-control. That's the opposite of addiction, isn't it? To be able to say no to your nature and just do what you know you need to do. And the good thing about all of this, because it's fruit, it overrides our weakness, okay? You might not naturally be a person of self-control, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit makes you into that person. So you know you've been changed. You know you've been transformed. You know you're sitting on your Father's knee. The absence of the fruit... It may not be the absence of salvation, but it does take away the assurance. And that's why we have to test ourselves. Jesus, in, in John chapter 15, when he talks about being the true vine, he says, cut off from me, you can do nothing. We're the branches, he's the vine. If you attach the branch to the vine, it produces fruit. If the fruit isn't in your life, it's because you become detached from Jesus Christ. You are the prodigal. You've moved away from the Father's knee and you've lain down. And the devil has turned you into a slave. We have to test ourselves. I test the home group. I've been doing it for years. We did the hair psychopathy test a few years ago. And I'm proud to announce our home group has been psychopath-free for six years. I'm very proud of that. At the moment, we're doing psychometric testing on gifts. We did it three years ago. And once again, I'm embarrassed to say I've got very little mercy. And do you know what? It's really embarrassing when you're sitting next to somebody like Mark who has enough mercy for 15 people. And you think to yourself, you feel so inadequate. But you know what? I'm so glad that there are people in our home group now who have less mercy than me. <laughs> and, you know, we have a very strict confidentiality uh, clause with our home group. But thank God for Iowin and Sally and <laughs> Alison. I mean, I just feel so good in their presence. I really do. And you know, there is something wonderful about merciless women. Seriously. <laughs> You know, whenever I go into our home group and I look at the women there, I'm always reminded of the words of Wellington before the Battle of Waterloo, looking at his own troops. And he said, I don't know what to do to the enemy, but they certainly scare me. I feel exactly the same every Wednesday. And, you know, we used to use a lie detector in our home group, but we stopped using that because I don't think it works. 
because we all know, okay, that Brenda has never told a lie in her life. And sometimes the machine said she was lying. So we're not going to use that again. But I am looking forward to September when we'll begin waterboarding. So that'll be, that'll be an interesting time. You might think this is all a bit excessive. But what does the Bible say? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Examine yourself to see whether you're still in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ lives in you? Of course, if you fail the test, then he does not live in you. 2 Corinthians 13.5, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 1 John 2.4, anyone who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And 1 John 3.10, very relevant scripture. In this way, we distinguish between the children of God from the children of the devil. Anyone not living a holy life and not loving his brother is no child of God's. The beautiful thing about the genuine Christian is that the son inherits. The son inherits the prestige of the father. You should be proud to call yourself a Christian, to identify with the teaching and example of Jesus Christ, to call yourself a son or daughter of the Most High. You have the right to look any prince, any pope, any prime minister, any president in the eye and view them as an equal. You no longer have to apologize for the way the Father made you, for the color of your skin, your nationality, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexual orientation, for your accent or education. The Son inherits all the wealth of the Father. All I have is yours in the prodigal son parable. Wealth is the absence of absence. It is the knowledge that your needs are being met and they will keep on being met. You can be rich and live in fear, okay? Real wealth is not to have to live in fear. You might not have the stuff that you really, really want, but you will have the stuff that you need. You have a right to be glad rather than sad, a right to be rich rather than poor, a right to be healthy rather than sick, a right to be strong rather than weak, a right to be wise rather than foolish, a right to be free of fear rather than filled with fear, a right to be secure rather than insecure, a right to be safe rather than lost, to be with friends rather than to be lonely. A right to know that you're going to heaven rather than hoping you go to heaven because the son's place in his father's house is assured but the slave's place in the house is not assured. And if that sounds a bit like the teaching of the American prosperity gospel, that is because the devil can only promise what only God can deliver. What did, God, what did the devil say to Eve? Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. God knows that on the day you eat that fruit, you will be, your eyes will be opened and you will become like gods. But the devil can't deliver that. He can only deliver slavery and death. But what did Jesus say in John chapter 10, verses 34 to 35? Is it not written in your law, I said that you are gods? So the law uses the word gods to describe those to whom the word of God is addressed and scripture cannot be rejected. The devil saw prophetically what we would become and he was envious of the favor bestowed on beings made in the image of God who would eventually become gods while he was made simply to serve, not rule. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5, God did not choose angels to be the rulers over the new world that is coming. Hebrews 1.14, all of the angels are serving spirits who are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Do you understand why he wants to take you from your father's knee and put you on that rubbish tip and enslave you? Because he wants to rule over you. 
He doesn't want to serve you. The rebellion of the fallen angels was that sense of pride. Why should we serve these people when we are higher than them? And God said, no, you're lower than them. He even tried it with Jesus in the temptation of the wilderness. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you all of these if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus tells him to get lost. And yet he doesn't come to us and say that, does he? He offers us a little bit of pleasure from pornography or from alcohol or from drugs or from stealing or whatever. And yet people exchange their eternal salvation for that. And every year a million Americans die as slaves to sin. What is wrong with us? Seriously. In conclusion, we have three choices. We can sit on the knee of our Heavenly Father and become like Him and so be a genuine Christian. Or we can leave His presence, lie down in the gutter and allow Satan to enslave us to some addiction and so become a prodigal son. Then the devil will know more about where we're going than we do because we're chained to him and a slave always goes where his master goes. Is there hope for the prodigal son? Absolutely. There's still time to return and be welcomed by the Father. Your brothers in the faith might not be so happy as they've been filling in for you on the breakfast rotor for the last 35 years. <laughs> but so what? You're home at last. You're reunited with your dad. You're back with him. And he loves you. And you've always loved him. It's just you've been estranged from him. Is the prodigal son a counterfeit Christian? Absolutely not. The prodigal is estranged from the father and the brother. Prodigals don't come to church. They're cold to the faith, just as the genuine Christian is hot. They don't pretend to be what they're not. The third choice is to be a counterfeit Christian, to call yourself what you're not. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is absent from your life, but you attend church. You're not the real thing, but you might not know it. You hear the word but you don't apply it. You're lukewarm to the faith. Is there any hope for the counterfeit Christian? Absolutely. For both the prodigal and the counterfeit Christian, God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But you have to do what he tells you to do. And the prodigal son parable is the message that God gives to the prodigal son. And the message that God gives to the counterfeit Christian is actually in the book of Revelations. And I'll finish with this. It's chapter 3, verse 15 to 20. This is Jesus speaking. I know all about you, how you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, but since you are neither, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you are lukewarm. You say to yourself, I am rich. I've made a fortune and have everything I want, never realizing that you are wretchedly and pitifully poor and blind and naked too. I warn you, buy from me the gold that has been tested in the fire to make you really rich, and white robes to clothe you and cover your shameful nakedness, and eye ointment to put on your eyes so that you are able to see. I am the one who reproves and disciplines all those he loves. So repent in real earnest. Look, I'm standing at the door, knocking. If one of you hears me calling and opens that door, I will come in to share his meal side by side with him.
This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.